There is no authoritative way to answer the question of what's going to happen this year. Other than if we belong to Christ, we know that he cares for us. So we trust in God's faithfulness. But apart from that, there is no guarantee as to what this year holds. We don't know what this afternoon holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. You might have plans for this year. That's, that's not a bad thing. But those plans may not align with God's plans. As Christians, though, even if we don't know exactly what's going to happen this year in our home, in our life, in our nation, in the world, we do live and should live with the confidence that God does. From the beginning of creation and all the way into eternity, God is watching over us. He's with us, guiding us every step of this journey. David understood that. He understood the nearness of God. He understood God's care for him at a personal level. And that's the major theme in Psalm 139. I'm going to just read a couple of verses from there. He's moved by the Holy Spirit, and he writes, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can't conceive of the nearness of my God who's with me at all times, who's already gone before me. And near the end of that psalm, Psalm 139, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Just like David pointed out God's concern at a personal level, we also know that in the scriptures we have references to God's concern at a corporate level. God loves and cares for his people, not just as individuals, but, but as a group. Ever since the beginning, God was guiding his people. He was leading the nation that he had raised up. And so the psalmist Asaph, praising God, says in Psalm 77, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Moses understood that as well. He was being used by God, but he credits God with all that was happening. In Psalm 90, he expresses his confidence when he says, Lord, you, Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So God through all history, cares for his people individually and corporately, and yet in the history of Israel, the people questioned that. When life was good and there were blessings, they could easily say, praise God, praise Yahweh. But when challenges came, many doubted that God was being faithful to his promises. The challenges that came in Israel was, were the result of their own sin. God brought judgment on them, but rather than examine their own hearts, they said, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you keeping your promise? It was a whole lot easier to blame God than to examine themselves. And you and I are the same. We face the same kind of temptation. Life is joyful. We can praise God. But when life gets difficult, we need the reminders from others and from the word of God of his faithfulness. We need to remember his promises. We need to remember the instruction he's given us. We need to be encouraged in the truth and in our walk with Christ. And so to that end, as we begin a new year, 
we will be beginning a new study through two books of the Bible focused on those themes of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, but also our obedience and faithfulness toward him. Those books are Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, they appear in your Bible as two separate books, but they were intended to be two parts of one story. You, you will also find in the Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Samuel. That's because the book was too long, they split it in two. 1st and 2nd Kings, same thing, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. In the New Testament, you have Luke and Acts. Luke is part one, Acts is part two. Both are written by Luke. So uh, you'll hear me sometimes refer to them as the book singular of Ezra Nehemiah. Both Ezra and Nehemiah are names of men whom God used in a very special way in a very important time of Israel's history. When I was a kid, I thought Ezra was a girl's name. I remember it sounded like Esther to me in the Bible. Oh, Esther, Ezra. And now I know better. But I recognize that Ezra and Nehemiah as well are not very well-known figures in the Old Testament. So today's going to be a little bit of background You're probably familiar with leaders like Moses and David. If you've studied the Bible a little more, you might know something about men like Hezekiah, Josiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. But Ezra and Nehemiah, if the names are well known, their lives may not be. They weren't kings. The books with their names on it are not very long. And neither of them is mentioned in the New Testament. They also come to us from a period of time in Israel's history that is generally lesser known to us. If you were to read the Old Testament in a chronological order, Ezra and Nehemiah would be at the very end. They would come alongside the ministries of the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Ezra and Nehemiah's portion of the story comes later than most people's commitment to reading their Bible. That means you know Genesis really well because it's January and we're starting to read the Bible. But by the time you're supposed to get to Ezra and Nehemiah, you haven't finished the story. And that's okay because that's what we're going to cover in the weeks and in the months to come. Today, we're not going to jump into the books. uh, But what I want to do is give you some background and introductory information. I hope it's helpful. I hope it's useful. I'm going to cover four messages or four sections of introductory background information. And I think that will prepare us. The first message, the first bit of information I want you to know is that we are going to be in a new genre. Maybe you're used to hearing the word genre when we talk about music or TV or movies, but the Bible comes to us in genres. You have different styles of writing. The last two studies we did were in 1 Thessalonians. We did the whole letter, and then we did 1 Timothy, just a few chapters in the middle. Those are epistles. They were letters written by the Apostle Paul. Ezra and Nehemiah is a different style of book. They're not personal letters, and they're not primarily characterized by explicit theology and doctrine and instructions for the church. They have doctrine and theology in them, but they are stories. They're narratives. We're coming to a different genre than last time. And for some of you, it might be a format that you prefer. I much would rather hear a story than read a letter. It might be more engaging for you. That's the first message. So we're coming to a different genre. Secondly, a bigger shift, we're coming to a different testament. And we'll spend a a bit of time here on on this lesson. Just want to help you prepare for this. We're in a different testament. Paul's letters are in the New Testament. They come after Christ. Christ has died. Christ has resurrected. And he writes letters to churches. 
Ezra and Nehemiah are the Old Testament. They're written before the coming of Christ. We don't use, typically use the word testament today, but in, when we speak of the Old and the New Testament, that comes from a Latin word that means covenant. In the Old Testament, we had the Old Covenant. Primarily, the focus is God's covenant to Israel through Moses. We call that the Mosaic Covenant. The New Testament is focused on the New Covenant that is brought to us and inaugurated by the blood of Christ. That's what we'll celebrate tonight at the Lord's Supper. He said, this is, this is the cup, is, is the New Covenant in my blood. We, as New Testament Christians, are not bound by the law of Moses. We're not bound by the Old Covenant. We are New Covenant people. That's why, even though you find Old Testament instructions against the practice, we can, as Christians, enjoy things like bacon and shrimp. Jesus came, God, to the apostles, declared all foods clean. So there's a difference. So if we are New Testament Christians, why are we studying the books in the Old Testament? That's a good question. And I have four answers for that question. So you got a little outline within an outline. And this... Answering this question is not going to, is going to help us not just appreciate Ezra and Nehemiah, but the Old Testament as a whole. And if, they, if these responses sound familiar to you, um, it's because I've taught them before. I just can't remember if it was in a sermon or in a class, but I, think, I still think it's good to remind ourselves four reasons why you should read your Old Testament. Maybe this is a good message to say, hey, if you haven't started reading your Bible this year, read your Bible. Don't throw away the Old Testament. Why? Number one, we read the Old Testament because of its essence. The essence of the Old Testament story, the most significant element of the Old Testament, is that it prepares us for and points us to Jesus Christ. The essence of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. I'd like you to take your Bible and go to John chapter 5. So the New Testament, John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking here, and he's speaking to the religious leaders. These are unbelieving Jews they are legalistic. They are uh, antagonistic to him. They want to kill him. And in the second half of John chapter 5, Jesus describes multiple witnesses or testimonies concerning his identity as the Son of God. John the Baptist came, pointing people to Jesus. God the Father pointed people to Jesus the Son. But notice what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You have, it, you have the Bible, you're studying the Bible, but you're not doing it the right way. He effectively is telling the religious leaders, the scholars, the experts in the law, in the Bible, you missed it. You missed it. You're so caught up in the minutia and the details of the Bible, and you missed the whole point. You're so worried about studying the trees and the leaves, you missed the forest. The Bible points to me, Jesus says. And the Bible of the Jews was the Old Testament. Now, it wasn't just the Pharisees who missed the point of the Old Testament, who struggled to put things together. Even Jesus' disciples had to be taught to read it properly. So go back just a, a few pages to the last chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. This is after the death of Jesus, after his resurrection. Jesus is walking with two of his disciples. They're on a road leading to the city of Emmaus. And as they're walking, Jesus' identity is hidden from them. They don't know it's him. 
They aren't sure why Jesus died. They're grieving his death. And they're even doubting that he resurrected. They know the tomb is empty. They heard the reports, but they don't know what, how to put it all together. And look at what Jesus said to them. Luke 24, verse 25. Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in order to help his disciples understand the Messiah more, Jesus gave them a lesson in the Old Testament. The beginning of the chapter says Emmaus is about seven miles away from Jerusalem. Could have been a two-hour lesson. Imagine a two-hour lesson from Christ walking you through the Old Testament as you walk to Emmaus. Jesus showed them how the story of Israel was preparing and pointing, was preparing the people and pointing to him. That's what we're seeing in the book of Hebrews as well. All the sacrifices, all that was going on is moving toward Christ Hopefully you see the significance of that in your own life. Do you want to know Christ more? Do you want to understand him, who he is? Do you want to value and appreciate what he has done? Jesus would say, then read your Old Testament. He is the essence of the Old Testament. And as we work our ways through Ezra and Nehemiah, if I don't help you appreciate Christ more, then I won't be fully honoring God's word and what God has done for us. We're on the other side of Christ, so I don't want to neglect Christ. It's not a, it's not a Jewish sermon. It's a, it's a Christian sermon. I will be shortchanging and diminishing the impact of God's word if I don't help you treasure Christ. So don't let me do that. And don't do that yourself when you read through the Old Testament. I just got to get through Leviticus. Don't, don't take that approach. What God is teaching me something. God is moving me in a direction. Don't ignore where this is all headed. Don't forget the essence of the Old Testament. That's the first reason to read it. The second reason you should read the Old Testament is because of its encouragement. It's encouragement. Jump forward with me to Romans chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So Paul is writing a letter to the Romans. In the first 11 chapters, he's describing doctrine, how one comes to salvation, why salvation is by faith alone. And then beginning in chapter 12, he gives practical instruction. Romans chapter 15, look at verse 4. He has just quoted a passage from the Psalms, and he applies it to Christ, and then he instructs the church to follow in Christ's footsteps. So here's an Old Testament passage. Jesus perfectly embodied that. We need to do the same, and look at what he says in verse 4. Romans 15, 4, he says, for whatever was written in former days was for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. That's what we need. We need endurance. We need encouragement. We need hope. Your life, just like mine, is hard. It hurts. There are difficulties physically, relationally, financially. Life is difficult. And we need encouragement and we need endurance to face whatever's happening and to live at peace with one another. Reading the stories of the Old Testament reminds us God upholds his people in tough times because Israel went through tough times. Keep reading. Romans 15, uh, verse 5, uh, Paul says, "May here's his prayer, may the God of endurance and encouragement 
May he grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be a beautiful picture to you. Our, your family, us as a church family, we come together with one voice to glorify God. There's unity, there's harmony. That's Paul's prayer. That should be our desire. The Old Testament gives us positive examples that teach us and encourage us and give us endurance. We can keep moving forward when we see the examples of people who've gone before us. And that's what we'll get to eventually in our reading of Hebrews. In chapter 12, he says, run the race. And he lists, chapter 11, he lists all these Old Testament saints. They lived out their faith. You can do the same. They suffered death for their faith. You can be encouraged to persevere. I hope our study in Ezra and Nehemiah encourages us in our walk. A third reason to read the Old Testament is because of its examples. So we have its essence, its encouragement. Number three, its examples. Jump forward with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, right after Romans. Romans reminded us that on the positive side, we get encouragement Our passage here, 1 Corinthians 10, reminds us that on the negative side, we also see some examples. I think most of you know the Corinthian church was was in the middle of a pagan city. And Paul is encouraging the church. He's urging them to stay away from the idolatry and the immorality that characterizes them. And to do that, he reminds them about the history of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reminds them that the Israelites, yes, they were God's chosen people, but they were not exempt of God's judgment. God very clearly made his displeasure known, sometimes very vivid ways. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 6, Paul, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says, now these things, this, these judgments took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And he goes on to describe some of God's... And one day, God killed 23,000 people. Those of you who know the Old, the Old Testament stories, God opened the earth, the sons of Korah were swallowed by it. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire. In verse 11, Paul adds, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. He doesn't say, well, your Old Testament, that's done now. Let's get to the New Testament. No, no, no. This has value. This encourages us positively. Negatively, it gives us examples. All of us face the temptation of worldliness. We don't use that word sometimes, but it's called worldliness. The world wants us to desire what it desires, to pursue what it pursues, to value what it values. And they are things that don't line up with the holiness of God and the mission of God. This will make your life valuable. This will make your life more meaningful. That's what the world is screaming in every commercial or every TV show, or every movie, every billboard, life itself. This is what you need for your life to mean something. And the message of the world is not lined up with the message of God. We, we feel those things pull at us. Left to ourselves, we would be conformed to the mold of this culture. And so how do you stop that? How do you prevent that? Romans 12 says, don't be conformed. And you prevent yourself from being conformed by having your mind transformed and renewed. And the Old Testament helps that happen. We're going to see positive examples of faithfulness, 
They motivate us to be faithful as well. And we're going to see negative examples that remind us of God's judgment. So as we go through the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to see characters that impress you, that maybe inspire you a little bit. And then you'll see characters that frustrate you. And you go, why don't you get it? What's wrong with you? I think it was R.C. Sproul. He, he, uh, said, he called it the Sproul principle of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how you study the Bible. The Sproul principle for studying the Bible. He said, when you see someone stupid in the Bible, that's you. You see things and you go, what's wrong with this person? You go, that, that, I'm not here to judge them. I'm here to say, that's me. I need to learn. Let, let, let's let the negative examples motivate us to holiness and righteousness. The fourth and final reason to read your Old Testament is because of its effect. And for this, jump to 2 Timothy chapter 3, which most of you are familiar with. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This was Paul's final letter. He wrote it. He knows he's going to die soon. And he writes it to Timothy, who is his son in the faith. He'd already written him before. That's 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy is his, his, it's like his, his last will and testament to Timothy, his spiritual son. And the main exhortation of the letter is that Timothy is to stay faithful to the word of God, cling to God's word. At that time, however, the scriptures were not the Bible we had today. When Paul says the scriptures, you know, we think are the Bible, but it wasn't when Timothy hears scriptures, what is he thinking? He's thinking the Old Testament. The written word of God for them at that time was the Old Testament. The New Testament had not been completed. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. In contrast to the wicked pattern of this world, here's what Paul says to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So he learned it from Paul, but he learned it, chapter 1 tells us, from his mother, from his grandmother. From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, including the Old Testament, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy was a man of God. That was his calling. That's what he wanted to live up to. And, and you draw a line of the road, the, the way that God wants you to walk, and you know that we, we struggle. What do you need? You need the scriptures. The scriptures teach you. They tell you what the path of righteousness is. They reprove you. That means they correct you. They, they bring you back, and then they equip you to stay on the path. Timothy was a minister of God's word. We're ministers for the sake of, of God and his purpose. Do you want to be more equipped? Do you want to be more useful to God, either in evangelism or in discipleship? How does that happen? It happens through the word of God. That's what Paul is saying. You want to grow? You want to mature? You want to, you, you want to, you want to be a better husband? You want to be a better wife? You want to be a better mom, a better dad, a better student, a better citizen, a better whatever? You want to honor God with your life for his glory? Read the Bible. Read the Old Testament. Its essence is Christ. Its encouragement will give you hope. Its examples will help you pursue holiness. And its effect will be an equipping for the glory of God. So that's the second point. We are in a new genre. We are in a different testament. But that's a, a much longer uh, point simply to, to tell you that even though we're going to be studying the Old Testament, it doesn't mean we're going to benefit any less from it. This is the word of God. 
The third and fourth messages I want to give you now are going to focus specifically on Ezra and Nehemiah. So you can go ahead and turn there finally, or go back there if you had already gone there. The book of Ezra is not easy to find. If you open your Bible to about the middle, you might hit Psalms, you might hit Isaiah, Jeremiah, go backwards. It's before those big books. If you see the pairs in the Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, go forward a little bit. They're right after 2nd Chronicles, and they're before Esther and Job. Just turn to the book of Ezra, the opening verses of Ezra. The third message I want to give you in preparation is just uh, is the historical background or the historical setting. What are these books about? We just spent four weeks covering the the, the, the big picture, the full Christmas story, the full story of humanity. Where does the story of Ezra and Nehemiah fall? What's happening here? Let me do a brief overview and just help us understand where we are in the story. Israel, as you know, began as a nation under Moses. They end up at the end of Genesis in Egypt. Moses brings them out of slavery in Egypt, and then he leads them for 40 years in the wilderness. They receive God's law, and they're on their way to the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham. Moses gets right up against the promised land, and he dies. The next leader is Joshua. He leads him into the promised land. It's divided among the tribes. After Joshua dies, there are the elders who knew him, but then comes the time of the judges. Remember, that was the downward spiral. Israel is straying from God's truth. That lasted for about 325 years, and it leads up to a united kingdom under one king, and that is King Saul. King David, and then King Solomon. Each of them ruled for 40 years, so that's 120 years under a united kingdom. After the reign of Solomon, Israel divides into two pieces. So it's the time of the divided kingdom. The kingdom in the north is called Israel. The kingdom in the south is called Judah. And in that time, God sends prophets. And he's telling them the same thing he told them in the desert. Have the law of Moses. Listen to the law. Obey the law. Judgment will come if you don't obey. Blessing will come if you obey. And the people don't listen. In particular, the kings don't listen. And so as part of God's judgment, the northern kingdom is destroyed. The Assyrians come. They're lost in history, just so you know. They're known as the the ten lost tribes of Israel. Many were killed. The rest flee. But a small portion flee south into Judah. So you've got the twelve tribes in Judah because of the destruction of Israel in the north. They stay there, maybe thinking they'd be safe, but... The kings in the south are straying from the truth as well. And 150 years later comes the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar destroys Israel. He destroys the temple. There are those who die, and the rest are taken captive. That was someone like Daniel. Israel is no longer a nation in its own land. They they were taken captive. They were exiles. This was a devastating time for the Israelites. There's a psalm that describes their, their pain in Babylon. The Babylonians would say, well, sing us a song of Israel, of Jerusalem. And the psalmist says, how can we sing a song of Jerusalem when we're here prisoners in Babylon? The, the faithful Israelites saw it coming. God's judgment is coming. We're going to be taken. But the majority of the nation, they felt blindsided. Where is God? We're his nation. How could he let this happen? He didn't just let it happen. He brought it to pass as a form of judgment. But despite Israel's rejection of the truth, God promised, especially through the prophet Jeremiah, that the captivity would only last 70 years. 
God said he would judge the Babylonians and the Israelites would return and rebuild. And that's exactly what happened. The Persian Empire comes in. They destroy the Babylonians. They conquer the Babylonians. And a new king comes to power. His name is Cyrus. He is now in charge of all the nations that his empire has taken charge over. So look with me at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord, Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Lord willing, we'll study the king's proclamation next week. But the gist of the proclamation is, you can go back now. If you want to go back, you can return to your homeland and rebuild. You can rebuild your home, and more importantly, you can rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, the, 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 the physical expression of God's presence and God's blessing. This is what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. The people are going back to rebuild Jerusalem. They have an incredible task ahead of them. And how is that going to go? Well, we've covered the big picture. I think you have that understanding that it's not going to go perfectly. Just so you know, the people don't go back all at once. And the work is not easy. There are three different groups that return each one under a different leader. The first group returns under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. The second group leaves 75 years later. They're under the leadership of Ezra. And the third group leaves 12 years after that, and they're under the leadership of Nehemiah. So that's where we get the names, okay? There's no test today. We're going to come back to this. Don't worry. But just to understand where we're going, I want to expose you to, to the big picture, and I'll be reminding you along the way where we are. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah is a story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the return of the people to the promised land. They need to come back, not just to rebuild, but to be obedient to God. Historically, these books fit right between 1 and 2 Kings and the New Testament. If you read up to the end of 2 Kings, they're deported. They're, they're taken captive. They're gone. Then you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You go, wait, they're in Israel. How did they get back? That's what Ezra and Nehemiah tells us. With that, though, I think I want to move to the last section, the last message. More important than the historical value is the spiritual value of this book. So I just kind of want to whet our appetite for what's, what's to come. This is the final segment of background information. This is the spiritual significance. Not very long, but it is important. The key theme in this story is the faithfulness of God. We don't want to let the titles of the books fool us. Ezra and Nehemiah are leaders, but they're not the main characters of the story. The main characters of, this, of the story is God. He is going to continue to showcase his faithfulness to his people. He has preserved them this far, and he wants to restore them. And isn't that the same story that we live in? God has preserved us. God, God has brought us this far, praise the Lord, but he's not done with us. God has plans for you individually. God has plans for us corporately as a family, as a church family. As we begin a new year, as we turn to this next chapter of, of life, the question we need to be asking is not, what do I want to do this year? The question is, are my plans for this year the same 
as God's plans? Are my goals aligned with God's goals? When my plans and God's plans aren't aligned, it's not God who needs to change his plan, right? We know that theologically. We don't feel that within God. You need to get on, on we, you need, we need to get on the same page here, God. Let's just come around to, to my plan. That's not how it works. But that's what Israel was thinking too. My plans needs to change, and that's the lesson Israel needs to learn. If they're going to be successful in rebuilding, they need to do things God's way. God's going to do his part. God's going to be faithful. God is going to be as loyal to his covenant in restoring Israel as he was throughout all of Israel's history. The question is, is Israel going to be faithful? Will the people be obedient? Have they finally learned their lesson? Or is the glorious blessing of God going to have to wait for another generation? Like we know, we're on the other side of Christ. We know that Israel doesn't figure it out. They struggle. By the time Christ comes, they reject their Messiah. But through it all, God stays with them. And we need that reminder constantly. Because you mess up. And I mess up. We do stupid, foolish, hurtful, mean things. But God hasn't left us. When you hear your mind or, and someone say, just don't go to church this week. You messed up too bad. That's not God. God is still here. And God is still with you. God cares for his people individually. And he cares for his people corporately. He's going to do something in you and through you. And here's how Jesus said it. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not, behold, if you have a really good day, I'll be with you. Not that. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that should give us great confidence. That should allow us to rest in the finished work of Christ. That's what we're thinking about when we sing. We're not earning our way to heaven. We're we're, we're living in obedience to God out of the gratitude of what he's done to purchase our salvation. That's the gospel. We rest physically, spiritually, we're resting in what Christ has accomplished. He's forgiven us. He has reconciled us to the Father. But the statement of Christ, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, was not just intended for comfort and confidence. It was intended for power. Because those are the closing words of the Great Commission. He didn't say, go sit on the couch, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. He said, go make disciples of all nations. Go baptize. Go teach. Go love people. Serve people. See people. Be edified and built up. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He knew that the fulfillment of his mission was not going to be easy. So yes, God cares for his people. God provides for his people. Yes, God's going to grow his people, but he's going to do it through the people. God works through human instruments, not apart from them. So as we learn about how God uses amazing men like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, and he uses them to accomplish his his plans and his purposes and to bless the people, we shouldn't hear the story and think, you know, what an amazing man Ezra was. What an amazing man Nehemiah was. Who is God going to use next to minister to me? We should be asking ourselves, how can God use me? to minister to someone else? 
How can God use my family? How can God use my, my home there in my neighborhood? How can God use me in my church to serve for the glory of Christ? You and I are not dead leaves in the flowing river of God's sovereignty. Well, I just sit here and God's in charge. God's sovereign, so you know I just do nothing. That's not how it works. We're not just dead leaves being flowed by the river, but we're also not the authors of the story. Some people swing the other way. Well, if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. We are instruments in the hands of God. He wants to use us for his glory and for his purposes. He wants to bless us as he does that. And the message of Ezra and Nehemiah is, it's time to get to work. It's time to rebuild. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray you move in us, not just right now, but through our life to, to value your word, depend on your word, feed on your word. We're grateful that you grow us by it. We're coming to something a little different. We pray that it's refreshing. New stories of men that you have used for your glory. In all of it, we pray you would help us turn our attention to Christ who has done what no man could do. And yet in his holiness and his faithfulness, we are called to walk in his footsteps, empowered by his spirit. We pray that the positive examples would motivate us, the negative examples would, would keep us from sin, and we pray your word would work in us. You are sovereign, Father. You are faithful in all that we do. We pray that in our work, you would gloriously demonstrate your kindness and your beauty and your love and your compassion for the glory of your name and of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.